This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. I think we understand that the internet has been an opportunity to expand freedoms for millions of people to access education, to start businesses, to uh, share perspectives. But we also know that we already have very strong laws in Canada against hate speech, against extremism, against violence. Unfortunately, uh, those laws haven't always been applied or haven't been able to be applied to keep Canadians safe online. Whether it's cyberbullying or violent extremism, uh, we need to make sure we're doing whatever is appropriate and whatever we need to do to both protect the rights and freedoms of Canadians, but also protect their safety. And doing both of those things together is something that our government has always committed to. The supplementary mandate letter provided to Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault in January of this year tasked him with taking action on combating hate groups and online hate and harassment, ideologically motivated violent extremism, and terrorist organizations. In recent weeks, it's become clear that Minister Guibault intends to do just that. In addition to Bill C-10, which would regulate internet streaming services, and his ongoing war of words with Facebook over linking to news articles, Guibault seems set to table another bill that would establish internet content regulations, including requirements for internet platforms to proactively remove many forms of different content, some illegal and others harmful or possibly even hurtful. Few would argue with the proposition that some regulation is needed, but venturing into government-regulated takedown requirements of otherwise legal content raises complex questions about how to strike the balance between safeguarding Canadians from online harms and protecting freedom of expression. Vivek Krishnamurthy is a colleague at the University of Ottawa, where he is the Samuelson Glushko Professor of Law and serves as the director of CIPIC, the Samuelson Glushko Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the complexities of internet content regulation and the risks that overbroad rules could stifle expression online and provide a dangerous model for countries less concerned with online civil liberties. Vivek, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's so it's always fun to have a colleague on, especially one who's who has been so focused on an issue that has really, I think, captured the attention of of many, both certainly from the political side and I think in the broader public as well. You know, why don't we start with with this? Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault's made it pretty clear that a bill, and I think for lack of a better term, regulate social media, including hate speech, misinformation, harmful contents, he's even made a reference to hurtful comments, uh, is on the way. Uh, what's your initial response to this emphasis on regulation? So my initial response is that, um, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed, and I'd like to paraphrase William Lyon Mackenzie King here, the former prime minister, uh, you know, with his added regulation if necessary, but not necessarily regulation. So, I mean, the way I think about this is there are clearly many different kinds of problems with online content, right? We have issues of non-consensual pornography, defamation, hate speech, misinformation, and, you know, increasingly uh, what's known as dangerous speech, right? Speech that tends to incite violence in the real world. And I think that all reasonable people would agree that the large technology platforms have not done 
a good enough job of dealing with all of these problems, right? I mean, part of it is, you know, underinvestment in online safety and content moderation, but part of it's also the inherent difficulty of, of moderating content at the kinds of scales uh, that platforms like Twitter and Facebook operate, right? So I think that's sort of the case for regulation. Um, companies aren't doing a good enough job of dealing with this problem by themselves. So therefore, let's take out some regulatory tools and force them to do a better job. But the, the, the question that arises in my mind is what exactly are we regulating? And you know how are we gonna regulate it? Are we gonna regulate the content itself that's allowed online? Are we going to regulate the methods of moderation? Are we going to regula uh, regulate the process by which companies need to act on certain kinds of content? Are we imposing duties on the people who publish themselves? And then there's a question of, you know, what's the point of intervention? Uh, do we go after the users themselves? Uh, platforms like Facebook uh, or Twitter that carry content? Or do we go deeper in, in, into the technical stack of the internet, right? So we in Canada are starting to experiment with uh, orders that require internet service providers uh, to block websites in the copyright context, right? So these are all the different kinds of levers that a government has. And I think the question is, um, which of these tools is going to yield appropriate results, right, that are in the public interest? Yeah, no, there's, and I think it, it's, a, it's a great way to frame it. There's just, there are a lot of, of tools. I think uh, when Daphne Keller came on the podcast, she talked about dot policy dials in a sense and the ability to adjust those dials in different ways. So there are a lot of different possibilities and the way in which you use those tools or adjust those dials has has big implications, some of which may be somewhat unanticipated. You know, the, there's a tendency to look for, for other models and laws that uh, are in place in other jurisdictions and say, well, why don't we do what they're doing? And, and there have been hints that the German approach, the Nets DG law, might serve as the model for what Canada has been thinking about. Can you explain what Germany's done in this area and a little bit on whether it's been effective in some of the issues that they've faced? Sure. So Nets DG is the German network enforcement law that was enacted in 2017. And what it does is it requires large platforms, so those with over 2 million active users in Germany, to take down what's called obviously illegal content within 24 hours of being notified and to take you know, other forms of just illegal content down in seven days, right? And um, what's illegal is defined in sort of 20, 21 different sections of the German criminal law. And it includes things like hate speech, defamation, um, sexually explicit content, um, you know, content that violates uh, privacy, so non-consensual pornography, et cetera. Um, and it was actually amended last year to require technology companies to affirmatively report uh, serious kinds of hate speech um, to law enforcement. Now, companies that fail to abide by either the substantive um, uh, parts of Nets DG, i.e. the sort of timelines for taking down illegal things, or its transparency reporting provisions, um, can be subject to fines of up to 50 million euros, which is quite a bit of money. Now, in terms of effectiveness, um, I think the effectiveness of the statute is very questionable. So there's a few different issues and a few different ways of looking at it. The first is that, you know, rather low number of complaints have been submitted pursuant to NetsDG. So all of Google uh, receives about 600,000 complaints a year. And we're talking about Google search, YouTube, photos, I mean, the full range of Google services. So 
compared to the scale of what's on Google. That's a very small number. For Facebook, uh, I looked at last year, they received just over 8,000 uh, Nets DG notices, right? And both of these platforms removed about 25% of the content, uh, you know, of which they were notified. Um, so one is, you know, uh, the scale at which this law operates is pretty small. But I think the other bigger issue is that illegal content, whether under German law or the laws of other, let's call them countries that respect human rights uh, and free expression, have strong protections for free expression, um, the illegal content, the stuff that is clearly illegal, is just a small prop part of the problem with harmful content online, right? So there's a lot of stuff that you know happens on the internet that's lawful but awful, right? And so take the entire class of, of misinformation and disinformation problems. Uh, Nets DG does pretty much nothing to deal with that um, because it's perfectly legal to you know, express certain kinds of, of opinions, which may be misinformation. Um, so that's kind of a second problem with NetsDG. But I think there's a third issue, right? Which is that, you know, philosophically, NetsDG promotes this trend, which I think began with the EU's right to be forgotten decision, sorry, Euro European Court of Justice's decision 2014 on the right to be forgotten, which puts technology companies in the position of basically being courts of first instance, when it comes to interpreting, uh, you know, public law regarding both, uh, you know, legality of content and uh, violations of privacy. So in Right to be Forgotten, it's the companies that decide in, in the first instance whether some piece of content should be taken down. And similarly, under, under NetsDG, companies are making legal determinations of whether they think something that's been notified to them is legal or not within that, that country. And I think that sort of raises some questions of legitimacy. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I've been talking for some time about how perversely at the time that we are concerned about the enormous power that these companies have, some of the proposed solutions to deal with some of the harms online would empower those very large companies even more. And it, it may well be that some of the smaller ones will even have a hard time scaling up to handle even some of the numbers that that you've just been talking about. How do how do other countries uh, that may not be as uh, look as favorably towards kind of the, the norms that we have around freedom of expression look at or implement some of the same kinds of issues? So uh, I think this is a really important point, um, Michael, which is that there's a, a wave of laws around the world, both in you know democratic countries that have strong respect for human rights and in countries that are less respectful of human rights to regulate social media. And um, we definitely see you know, models that are being pioneered um, in democratic countries making their ways to less democratic places. So let's take an example of this. Um, um, Poland has introduced legislation that's modeled on NetsDG, right? That would require prompt takedowns uh, by companies doing business in Poland of content that violates Polish law. Um, but there's a wrinkle, which is that the Polish uh, bill would create a social media council that the current proposal is, uh, it would be staffed by five members of the parliament to which anyone who feels that uh, some content has been taken down um, in violation of their rights, they can appeal to that, and then it gets put back up. Now, in the political context of Poland, this is very concerning uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is that Poland has pretty broad 
laws that permit the uh, removal or you know the criminalization of many forms of expression um, that are protected by international law, including uh, expression that's critical of the government, which shows them authoritarian authoritarian tendencies. But at the same time, the social media regulator um, is likely to be dominated by the governing party. So. Uh, this sort of <laughs> there's also this conversation that's being happen happening about sort of over moderation or um, you know uh, people want platforms to affirmatively carry certain kinds of expression. So you could imagine um, this regulator in Poland forcing companies to put back up uh, speech that the government likes but that violates the platform's uh, uh, community standards. Uh, another country that's embarked on this road is Pakistan. Um, so Pakistan enacted a law last year and promulgated rules last last November that basically allows their t- telecommunications regulator to order any content that violates Pakistani law uh, down within 24 hours, or you know the companies can face uh, you know, either financial fines or the possibility of being blocked uh, completely in Pakistan. And Pakistani law is pretty vague um, when it comes to uh, restrictions on expression. You know, it's unlawful in, Can- in Pakistan to offend religious sentiments, for example. What exactly does that mean, right? Um, so we see this sort of diffusion um, of this sort of a heavy-handed approach uh, around the world in places that are not particularly rights-respecting. That should concern all of us who care about free expression and uh, an idea of a global internet. Yeah, I, I, those examples you provided are really interesting because they, if not, if they are not necessarily identical to some of the things that we've been hearing Canada's thinking about, they certainly bear a, a pretty striking similarity in that possibility of essentially citing a Canadian model, let's say, in countries that might implement it in a somewhat different manner, uh, really raises the kind of freedom of expression issues that you just you're highlighting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious from a Canadian perspective, if, if Germany raises some issues and you just cited a couple of other countries as well, is there someone in your mind that's been doing it right? Uh, is there a model that we should be following before we get into some of the specifics that Canada faces that might not be found in some other jurisdictions? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of interesting models that deserve study. Um, Australia enacted some legislation right after the Christchurch massacre that just dealt with the problem of abhorrent violent content, um, right? So, of course, you know, the Christchurch massacre was live streamed on a number of uh, social media platforms, uh, which was horrific and awful and terrible. Um, so they have a relatively narrowly tailored law that deals with that particular set of problems, um, and I think, the, you know, they struck a reasonable balance in doing that. Um, I think two really interesting approaches that require more thought and reflection are what's coming out in the European Union's Digital Services Act. And I think it's interesting in three ways, because there remains a strong commitment to intermediary liability as a principle, right? So intermediary liability is the idea that the intermediary should not be responsible for um, you know, harms related to the content in the first instance. It should be, uh, you know, the person or user that's posting it, but that liability can be taken away, or that protection for liability can be taken away in certain circumstances. So that commitment remains there. There's also um, an idea in the DSA of treating different size platforms differently. 
and placing different kinds of <clears throat> obligations on very large platforms as opposed to smaller ones, which can sort of deal with the problems of, of corporate power and competition. Um, but I think the big question is that the DSA also has this uh, so-called notice and action framework, right? Whereby when a company is notified um, <clears throat> of unlawful content or other kinds of problematic content, uh, there's some kind of duty to act. And, um, you know, the devil will be in the details of how that comes out. And, you know, that proposal actually has a lot of resemblance to what the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression, um, its report that came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago that looks at some of these these issues, right? There is an idea there of having a, a similar notice and action framework here in Canada, where it, uh, the, the commission departs, however, and where I, I see it as being a bit more problematic, is that they do talk about this generalized duty on platforms to act responsibly. And um, the UK um, issued a white paper a couple of years ago called the Online Harms White Paper, um, where that duty could be you know, quite broad and could be quite problematic, uh, depending on what it entails exactly. Is it an affirmative duty to police um, your platform? Is it an affirmative duty to maintain records of who's posting things? There's a lot of tensions there. And it's interesting that in the, in the Canadian Commission Democratic uh, Expression, one of the commissioners, uh, Jamil Jaffer from uh, Columbia's Knight First Amendment Institute, who happens to be Canadian, um, you know, issued um, a concurring uh, uh, set of recommendations just based on the ill-defined nature of this duty to act responsibly. Yeah, no, it definitely opens up some some pretty significant challenges, uh, and it, it's striking that even within that commission, you had c clearly some divisions in terms of of the, of of the way to go forward, or at least some of the implications that some of the recommendations would have. You know, it, I think that highlights some of the challenges in moving towards regulating in this space. Uh, from a Canadian perspective, as I mentioned off the top, we have heard I think calls from people in a whole series of different sectors, sometimes focused on obviously illegal content, you know, child pornography, terrorist content, hate in certainly some jurisdictions. Uh, but then, and you, you, I think you made reference to it a few moments ago, there is all sorts of other content that may be awful, but lawful. And so, and we've, we've seen certainly comments coming at least out of the heritage minister uh, that go, would even go beyond that talking about hurtful, not even just harmful. You know, what are your thoughts on how we square freedom of expression with some of the protections that we have under the charter of rights and freedoms? Uh, as we try to move forward with some of these regulatory approaches? So I think this is a really difficult question, right? And I think the key question that needs to be answered is that, um, you know, the Charter, like many modern constitutions in the international human rights framework, right, uh, protects free expression, but permits reasonable restrictions that are imposed by law as long as they're necessary and proportionate. So we can think about these restrictions on expression, you know, two kinds, right? There's a certain category of content that it's just illegal, period, right? There's no no situation in which you can legally do this thing. You know, so certain kinds of violent threats or child sexual exploitation material, right? And th those are the easy cases. And by and large, platforms do a good job of dealing with that. But then there's a vast category of expression that the lawfulness depends on the context, right? And same thing for whether the government can restrict that content in a particular circumstance. And one way to think about this is the broadcast regulating regime, regulatory regime, right? So in most countries, 
um, there are limits on what you can broadcast that are uh, much more restrictive than you know what you can say overall, right? Um, so certain kinds of legal content simply can't be broadcast, and even then there are you know fine-grained restrictions on when you can broadcast certain kinds of content. So you know violent content or sexually explicit content. Uh, you know, later in the evening and, and so forth, right? And these kinds of regulations have been upheld by constitutional courts around the world. So I guess the question that faces us here in Canada is how would we adapt the existing doctrine that we have around the charter, um, which governs when certain kinds of expression can be limited in certain circumstances and translate that to social media, right? So if we take a form of expression that's harmful, uh, so let's say disparaging speech about uh, an ethnic group that is not hate speech under Canadian law, um, would we um, require the limitation of the distribution of that content in certain kinds of ways? Uh, would we prevent it from being expressed on social media at all? So I think there's a question of of mapping. And, and, you know, I think this relates to the work you've been doing on Bill C-10, the broadcasting work, is that we have a lot of broadcasting law in this country and elsewhere. And it's very tempting to try to uh, adapt that to the internet age. And I think in the free expression context, it's less the regulatory mechanisms than rather the doctrine that's um, interesting to take uh, and adapt. But there's one more thing to, to sort of bring to this conversation is that the conversation that most regulators have been ha having is what, um, you know, uh, people in the field would call the binary policy conversation, right? Is it on or is it off? Is it up? Is it down? Is it legal or is it illegal, right? And where the platforms themselves have gone is towards a much more sophisticated way of thinking about content, right? What they call non-binary policy. So thinking about things like reducing the distribution that content gets, demonetization of certain channels or users on a platform like YouTube. And I think, you know, it would be interesting for us to explore, you know, more sensitive forms of regulation that may not completely ban certain kinds of expression online or impose these draconian takedown requirements, but rather incentivize um, the deprioritization of content that does cause harm without completely restricting it. Now, you have thoughts on how we do that? I mean, it's a really interesting point, and it highlights that platforms are doing something, but uh, it, it certainly feels like, as you hear government officials talk about it, that there isn't a, a whole lot of nuance in terms of some of the things that they're thinking about. It's much more about the kind of binary approach that you just referenced. Well, I think this is where the regulatory process has not been that good in this country, right? Which is that we're going to see a bill when it comes and then we're going to have a debate rather than thinking um, carefully about, you know, to use Daphne, to build on Daphne's metaphor of knobs and dials. Well, what knobs and dials should we build in the first place as we're enacting this regulatory framework? So some ideas are, I mean, there's a robust conversation happening about algorithmic transparency as a general concept, right? When it comes to all kinds of uses of algorithms, you know, credit scoring and medical. And we're having that conversation about uh, social media and user-generated content platforms, right? I think in the C10 context around this idea of discoverability of Canadian content. Well, perhaps we should think about that too. Perhaps we should think about what are the 
um, manners in which algorithmic curation makes some of these problems worse. I mean, there's also, you know, the really big question of uh, what Shoshana Zuboff has called the surveillance capital capitalism business model of big tech, right? We're increasingly understanding that the reason that we have so many problems with extremist content and other kinds of, of content online is that the um, business models of big tech companies, which seek to maximize time spent on the platform and engagement, um, result in their algorithms feeding users that content. So it might also be useful to have, you know, a bigger picture tech policy conversation on how do we regulate those business models and um, the nature of, of the harms that they create. And, you know, from a constitutional perspective, it may well be much easier to regulate the business model and the monetization of user data and these algorithms that curate content than the expression itself. It, it raises a relatively fewer free expression concerns at least, right? So I think those are all possibilities that require, uh, you know, thought and study. Sure. I mean, one of the implications of, of seeking to either regulate the business model or regulate the platforms from a speech takedown perspective are some of Canada's trade obligations. And uh, I know you've been active on the issue of Section 230 sub C and the similar kind of language that we find in the USMCA. Can you talk a bit about what's there and, and what the implications might be for Canadian policy? Sure. So um, Article 19.17 of the USMCA closely mirrors, uh, as you mentioned, you know, Section 230 sub C of the U.S. Communications Decency Act, which is obviously a very con controversial legal provision in the U.S. and internationally right now, and there's a lot of talk about reforming it. But, you know, the, the, the CDA 230 in the U.S., to just simplify, basically provides platforms with immunity uh, from being held legally responsible for things that other people publish on them, right? So the classic way I explain this is that if someone defames you on Facebook, uh, you can't sue Facebook. And as 230 has been interpreted in the US, you couldn't even take your court order once the uh, content has been, uh, uh, you know, uh, a court has adjudicated it as being defamatory. You can't, you still can't force Facebook to take it down. Uh, so it's extremely broad in the US. Um, the USMCA has a bit of a milder version of this. So. The USMCA says that you know parties can't have measures on their books that would um, hold the platforms liable um, for the content that they uh, liable for the harms related to the content that they make available. So it's that term. The term is liability for harms, and the question around the sort of regulation of social media here in Canada. Uh, with regard to USMCA is how that phrase is interpreted, liability for our harms. So in our report um, that we did at CIPIC with uh, the Cyber Law Clinic at Harvard, um, we said, okay, liability means liability. So you can't hold the companies criminally or civilly liable uh, for content that they put up and the resulting harms. So you can't sue Facebook for defamation, but um, you might be able to go enforce a court order right, asking Facebook to take it down because the content is unlawful. So if we build on that uh, hypothesis of the USMCA, a bill could be crafted here 
that uh, would basically say, okay, you know, we're not going to hold the companies directly responsible for the legality of the content, but we're going to set up a procedure whereby, you know, if you get this notice um, and you don't take it down within X amount of time, uh, there'll be a fine for your non-compliance with the timeliness requirement. And, uh, you know, this has been proposed in defamation context here in Ontario, right? Uh, Hillary Young and Emily Laidlaw uh, did this great report for the Law Commission of Ontario that talks about notice and takedown for defamation backed up with a penalty, a financial penalty for um, platforms that don't promptly act on these notices, right? Um, so there's an open question there of whether um, whatever legislation uh, the government ultimately introduces is going to be compliant with the USMCA and also about what the USMCA provision ultimately means. Okay. So a, a lot of moving parts when you start incorporating some of those issues. There one last policy issue before we kind of wrap up with just some of the process questions about what lies ahead. Facebook's attracted a fair amount of attention for its oversight board. I mean, it provides one illustration of how companies are trying to deal with these issues. And uh, they've even argued that they're open to new kinds of regulation. How do you see that kind of initiative where companies say, well, it's difficult for us to be in the kind of position to have to make these calls. You mentioned it earlier. So we're going to create this new entity and, and argue that it's going to function independently. And there's no debate around that as one mechanism to deal with that. Is that how, how does that approach, I suppose, stack up as compared to what we might actually see from a legislative perspective, which is perhaps a social media regulator along the lines that you've highlighted some other countries have moved forward with? Yeah, so I think the oversight board, I mean, first of all, this is a fascinating ex experiment, but, you know, private company setting up a pretty independent body to uh, make, you know, some very important decisions given what that company does. Um, um, so first of all, I think, you know, Facebook deserves some credit for setting this thing up. And, um, you know, what's been interesting about the oversight board is that we now have first decisions. And as someone who cares about international human rights, I would say the decisions are really great. Um, because what the Oversight Board has done is to look at Facebook's content moderation policies and hold them up to scrutiny under um, how international human rights law looks at free expression, right? So Article 19 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. So, I mean, I think that's a very positive development just in and of itself. Um, to me, the best feature of the Oversight Board is that it's international. It applies to Facebook's global operations, right? And it recognizes that Facebook is a global platform. I mean, one of the great things about the internet is its global nature, right? And those of us who've been interested in internet freedom for a long time, you know, feel that that's worth protecting, right? The fact that we do have global networks for communications where people around the world can communicate and exchange ideas and communicate, right? That's a great thing. And we don't want to lose uh, that great thing as we try to regulate the many excesses of what we built. Um, now, of course, there are questions of legitimacy that arise with either Facebook directly, uh, you know, setting its own rules or just, you know, outsourcing it to a pretty good oversight board. So, you know, I think there's a possibility here of a, of a happy marriage. So the problem with individual governments setting up regulatory bodies that are going to enforce their own national laws online is precisely that balkanization problem because national laws differ and national laws sometimes depart significantly from international human rights norms, right? And we discussed what happens when the Pakistans and Polands and Ugandas of the world 
um, you know, take German approaches to uh, internet regulation and then apply it in the context of weak will of law, right? That's a bad thing. Um, but what if we, you know, sort of took the best parts of the oversight board and the enhanced uh, uh, legitimacy that comes from governments, right, as elected bodies setting up uh, uh, regulatory mechanisms and, you know, marry the two. And one of the ideas that I've just sort of been thinking about, and I should probably go right about this, is, um, you know, what if we took the International Grand Council that investigated Cambridge, the Cambridge Analytica thing and, and used that model to regulate social media internationally? You know, we could have a grand coalition of countries agree to create an international standard setting body for these companies, the content moderation decisions and their processes. And I think the benefit of doing that is that it, it, it recognizes the global nature of the internet and the fact that you know, international human rights law should govern um, what kinds of content are permitted or not on these global platforms. So that's what I would advocate for, you know, coming out of the early days of the oversight board experiment. Okay, so why don't we close with this? And I guess a question of whether or not, or in what capacity, you'll get the opportunity to to put forward a proposal like that. Uh, we're recording this at a time when the heritage minister has indicated a bill is coming. He says it's expected before the end of the month, so before the end of February, twenty twenty one. We don't know; could come the you know immediately after we finish this conversation. It could be still a couple of weeks away, but um, we we don't yet know the the full substance of it. But we also don't really know the process in terms of what's going to come forward. You know how how do you see or how would you like to see this unfold from a process perspective? Given that we're now got several balls in the air, I think a little bit when it comes to so the this internet regulation file. Yeah. So I mean, I've been disappointed in the process so far because I do think it would have been a better approach for the government to consult more before putting out a legislative proposal, but we are where we are. And, you know, I think legislation is going to be introduced and that'll be our first look at the Canadian model. Um, that being said, so, and I think there's also the possibility, right, that they come up with something that's really good and nuanced and sophisticated. I'm not very optimistic about that based on what's been reported in the media so far, but let's grant that possibility. But, what I think we need to do um, is to examine the proposal very carefully. And in doing so, we need to think not just of what is it that we're trying to regulate here in Canada, but Canada's role in the international system, right? So we're a founding member of the Freedom Online Coalition, of the Media Freedom Coalition. We have a reputation around the world for being a strong advocate uh, for international human rights you know, principle-based uh, regulation of not just the internet, but of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, where we've been, you know, real leaders. So I think as we look at um, this bill that will apply within our country, we need to be keenly aware of what the, you know, international repercussions are going to be. And, you know, Canada is a, a middle power, right? We don't have the same kind of of heft in the international system as the United States does, right? We're dealing with uh, regulating platforms that are mostly offshore. So I think, um, you know, being sensitive to that role, the role and the space that Canada occupies and how we could uh, for, you know, forge common ground with other countries in the world. I think these are all things 
that we should carefully consider. And I mean, the last thing I'll say is that so far, I feel that this government, um, its approach to internet regulation has been very 20th century, right? And we've seen this uh, on a number, you know, I think C10 especially, right? It's really a, a straightforward attempt to take broadcast regulation and apply it to the internet. So what I do hope is that there's some sensitivity to the different nature um, of online communication um, in the regulatory approach. So maybe they'll get it right. Maybe let's hope they're listening because I, I you know, <laughs> cer- certainly I, I, I obviously agree with you in terms of what we've seen so far. It's been been pretty discouraging, not just even the the bill, but some of the debate I think that's been surrounding that legislation, and especially once we start getting into core freedom of expression issues and the role that how Canada often I think sees itself globally, the kind of choices we make is, as I think you pointed out throughout this conversation will have implications, not just for Canadians, but really for, I think citizens around the world as Canada's often looked to as a potential model. And if we get it wrong, some of those same kinds of wrong policies might find their way into other jurisdictions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Vivek, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <music>